0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Richard Osijo, a host on New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And this interview is being done in partnership with the Community and Urban Sociology section of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. Joining me today is Elizabeth Corver-Glenn, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of New Mexico. And today she's going to talk about her recent book, Race Brokers, Housing Markets and Segregation in 21st Century Urban America, an examination of how racism in the real estate industry contributes to racial segregation and thereby racial inequality in cities today. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, great. So I wonder if you could just start by telling us briefly about your background, specifically, you know, how you came to work on this project and write this book.
1: Sure. So the sort of the seeds for this project were planted very early on when I was a graduate student at Rice University uh, in Houston, Texas. And I was starting to, to do a lot of reading, as graduate students do, uh, and hopefully faculty as well, and uh, was becoming more and more convinced that racial segregation was something I really wanted to study. I viewed it as the kind of the cornerstone uh, of systemic uh, racial inequities in our society, in American society. And at the same time, uh, my spouse and I went through the process of uh, purchasing our first home in uh, an a urban Houston neighborhood. And uh, the process was extremely overwhelming and entailed numerous interactions with all kinds of real estate professionals, including real estate agents, mortgage bankers, inspectors, appraisers, and so on. And so kind of the confluence of those two things, things—you being immersed in the literature on racial segregation, which, as I'm guessing many of your listeners uh, know, uh, has been studied uh, in depth for a very long time. um, And uh, and my own personal experience of, of going through that process and realizing that there was actually a pretty big gap in some of the racial segregation literature, uh, really missing um, kind of how real estate professionals continue to matter in the post-fair housing era and specifically in shaping housing opportunities and outcomes. So uh, the project was uh, kind of evolved from that confluence of of dynamics and eventually became uh, what was my doctoral dissertation and then evolved even further into the book.
0: Great. Thank you. I think like a lot of readers, I, I certainly recalled a lot of my own personal uh, home buying experiences as I read this book and, and found a lot of connections with it. It was, it was really fascinating. So um, you, you start the book by briefly profiling and quoting four real estate agents in Houston, and they speak about different neighborhoods and different circumstances, but they all use the word natural to describe real estate and real estate market. One says that it's a it's a natural progression that a Latinx neighborhood will change as white hipsters move in. Two of them say that it's natural for racial groups to want to live near people who look like them and then another says that the relationship between rising home values and an influx of white homeowners is also a natural progression and you use these examples to show how, Racial housing segregation has become so pervasive that it has become naturalized or just perceived as the natural order of real estate, the way that it's just going to be. And your book here is intervening by showing the important role that real estate professionals, the actual people, not you know, any kind of natural forces, uh, play in creating and maintaining racial segregation. So start please by telling us. Why racial segregation matters so much, just in general, Uh, how we got to this point of such advanced levels of housing inequality by race in the U.S., and how these real estate professionals are important for understanding this process.
1: Sure. So. Racial segregation, as uh, Professor Monica Bell and many others have argued, is one of the primary tools uh, that is used um, as a, basically, as a weapon of white supremacy in American society. Um, It's a tool used by people in all kinds of sectors, from education to policing, to employment, to transportation, urban planning, uh, to healthcare care, to businesses and retails. It's, it's a tool that's used by actors in those industries and, and uh, organizations to actively um, Oppress um, in, individuals and communities of color, and to uh, accrue advantages and um, and value to white communities and white individuals. And so um, that's why it's so important. It's it's uh, as a major tool uh, of of white supremacy and, and the broader uh, system of racial um, inequality and racism in the United States. Um, it's kind of at the middle of it all. Um, and um, if it's if it's dismantled, if it's chipped away at, uh, perhaps we can actually begin to see some change in some of these other arenas as well. How we got here, well I think there's a lot of a lot of ways we could go with that, but one of the primary ones I like to talk about is the confluence of uh, public policy and uh, private industry uh, throughout the 20th century and, as my book demonstrates, into the 21st century. Uh, public policy and private industry, including uh, the real estate industries I cover in the book, the real estate brokerage industry, housing development, um, mortgage banking, and lending, and uh, appraising, um, all used explicitly racist uh, policies and practices from um, the inception of the kind of the modern uh, housing market in the 1930s um, and continue to to this day, Um, specifically um, using the logics of of, uh, racial difference, distinction and hierarchy uh, to uh, constitute um, that market and um, and so really, I can get into more detail, but I think one of the uh, the, the stories that's been told many times now, including by um, uh, Monica uh, Bell, by um, Kianga Yamada Taylor, uh, by uh, Richard Rustin, and many others, is that this confluence of of public policy and um, and private industry, along with uh, just everyday housing consumers, people who buy homes and so on, um, follow these racist logics um, of of difference and then naturalize that difference uh, to the point where we now have very durable racial segregation and in, to the point where, the, as you noted, the professionals in my study regularly referred to it as a natural condition uh, and you did so um, as they sort of deflected their own role in maintaining um, racial segregation um, as, as a condition of, um, as a, kind of a uh, an outcome of that market and um, their own actions in it.
0: All right, thank you. Now let's get into these professionals now and we'll start with the title, which is also the key concept you're using here to make mm-hmm. sense of these folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you define race brokers, it comes on pages 11 and 12, as gatekeeping individuals in any social sphere who are more influential than most pe- other people in shaping what race means, whether and how ideas about race are connected to resources. Close quote. So it's this is a really valuable concept, I think, that we can apply to a lot of different situations. And given the stakes involved, the real estate industry is a perfect locus for seeing it. Uh, Now, each of the professionals you study and you mentioned they are the, the housing developers, real estate agents, mortgage bankers and appraisers. They're all intermediaries within the real estate industry. They're all well positioned in between distinct actors with the power to make their ideas about race really kind of stick to housing and the housing market. And you argue that the dominant racial frame you found these professionals are using is what you call the the racist market rubric, which enables them to perceive the people and neighborhoods they encounter in specific ways that favors whites and whiteness and majority white neighborhoods. So walk us through this concept a bit, like how you came up with this idea of race brokers, how it describes the people in the real estate industry, as well as this rubric, what it is and, and how these brokers use it.
1: Sure. So part of the impetus for the project uh, more broadly was uh, kind of thinking about some of the gaps in the sociology of race and ethnicity, uh, which has, uh, as others have noted, uh, largely focused on kind of like systemic or structural racism and the kind of individual level racism and uh, discrimination, and has kind of missed the sort of middle uh, of, of how structures and individuals come together. And there have been some really important interventions recently along those lines, um, including Victor Ray's uh, theory of uh, racialized organizations, which I draw on in the book. Uh, but, but even before that piece came out, I was trying to think about how how do we connect structures and individuals? How, what, what, where's the kind of, where's the, where are the missing pieces? And uh, I started doing a, a kind of a lot of reading and surveying of the literature and thinking about people who are really influential. They're, they're, they are gatekeepers, um, whether they're, uh, Gatekeeping resources like material resources, or they're gatekeeping social resources, including like social connections. Uh, I bring both of those uh, kinds of resources together in the book and show how real estate professionals are connecting people or disconnecting people. They're connecting resources, other kinds of resources like land uh, and uh, the socially constructed value, um, to a specific people and neighborhoods, and and show how these. Very important people um, are one way that we can think about sort of the middles of of, uh, of racialization and racism um, in American society. These intermediaries who are are not. Just the average person out, you know, going for a walk, but rather um, have uh, access to the resources and the knowledge um, that allows them to shape um, outcomes and opportunities um, in um, in very powerful ways. So that's a little bit of kind of how I came to to that. Uh, in terms of the the rubrics I talk about in the book, uh, that was really a, an emergent kind of. Um, outcome of the analysis that I did of all the data that I gathered. And uh, I, I coded, um, recoded and coded again, um, all of the more than 100, um, in-depth interviews. I, I gathered the hundreds of pages of ethnographic, uh, field notes that I took with, um, 13 different real estate agents and housing developers. And these were the, the predominant, uh, ways that, um, real estate professionals in the study uh, connected ideas about race to market activity, right? So specifically how they reflected on race um, and with respect to the work that they did in their everyday lives. And as I discuss in the book, and as you pointed out, uh, the racist market rubric uh, was absolutely the dominant rubric and was, uh, was pretty much the only one used by the white professionals. Um, and these basically were racist ideas uh, that these white professionals, these intermediaries uh, connected to their daily work and used um, it, to make decisions about who to try to network with or how to market a home or where to purchase land for development or how much to appraise a home's value um, at. And so, so that's why I call it a rubric, right? It's like a it's like a, an almost like an event evaluative sort of um, tool that these professionals were using.
0: Yeah. And and another important contribution your book makes is its discovery of an alternative racial frame that some real estate professionals in your sample use. So instead of the the racist market rubric, uh, some of these professionals, a subset, and they're usually people of color, use what you call a people-oriented market rubric. And as a result, you refer to these folks not as race brokers, but race breakers or people who are uh, breakers of racism in the housing market. So how does mm-hmm. this rubric contrast with the more common racist market one? And what are these professionals trying to accomplish that's different from the larger uh, people group of people in your sample?
1: Sure. So the people-oriented market rubric was really an Kind of the primary way that that some of the professionals of color um, in my study um, evaluated their clients, evaluated their work, and made decisions about uh, with whom they would work with and uh, where they would work and so on. And this rubric really was um, to such a, a, a stark contrast to the racist market rubric because uh, people who used it were actually affirming of the the cultural, the moral. Um, the social, the economic value of people of color, alongside that of, of white folks in white neighborhoods, and I uh, really used this sort of people affirming, people oriented approach uh, to discern what they did um, in their professional work, um, so so um, and for many of them this was and as I discussed in the book this was really influenced by their own experiences of discrimination whether in the housing market or in other spheres. Uh, several of them reflected on you know discrimination they had experienced in fact in one uh, one example in the book I talk about a, a real estate broker who herself had been uh, a victim of a predatory mortgage loan um, and that. Actually shaped um, not only the fact that she was actively um, trying to work with um, uh, communities of color and home buyers of color, but also the, the specific mortgage bankers that she was willing to refer them to, uh, because she didn't want them to experience the same kind of, of um, discrimination that she had experienced. Right, and so so the the people oriented market rubric was a kind of it a, was a. a, a counter way of of trying to engage housing market work. Uh, But as I discuss um, in the book, you know, there, there were limitations right to, to the, the extent to which uh, a people oriented market rubric could actually kind of undermine the broader racialized logic of the contemporary housing market, uh, precisely because um, it's not just professionals, right, that are doing the work. It's it's these real estate organizations, it's industries themselves um, that are imposing racist and economic incentives um, that make racist housing work lucrative, right? And so um, there's there were limitations in, in the extent to which um, these professionals of color who drew on the people-oriented housing, uh, the people-oriented uh, market rubric could actually kind of um, sort of tr- uh, change the sort of the contours uh, of the market because they couldn't, they like at the end of these individuals alone can't uh, undo um, the broader sort of uh, logics and methods of the market more generally.
0: Oh Great, thank you for that. Uh, So before we go into your findings in greater depth, tell us a bit about Houston, the city that you focus on and some of its neighborhoods. Uh, What is its particular local history of racial segregation? And what does its housing market look like today?
1: Sure. So uh, Houston is the uh, most ethno-racially diverse city uh, in the United States um, today. Uh, and it has been heading towards that trajectory for, for quite some time. Uh, it is a rapidly growing major city and it's often touted as kind of like the, the cosmopolitan sort of future of of urban America. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it's it has a long history of, of racial segregation, uh, black-white segregation, and a Latinx-white segregation um, are both uh, remain uh, quite high into the 21st century. Um, and this is despite the fact that that Houston has several characteristics that would, you know, sort of theoretically lead to sort of lower levels of segregation, um, including affordable housing. So, you know, there are um, higher proportions of people of color in Houston who own their homes than in places like Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York, for example. Um, or another thing that that uh, people often point to is that um, you know Houston doesn't have a, a, a master zoning plan, right? It's 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 not got this sort of like centralized um, plan um, that some folks have theorized might be related to sort of increased uh, segregation, but. What Houston does have is an extremely micromanaged uh, kind of zoning um, called deed restrictions. Um, and it is uh, the most deed restricted um, uh, major city in the U.S. Um, the last I checked. Um, so so there are these other kind of local things that really matter. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, despite the fact that it's a very diverse city, that it's had much greater success in terms of um, access to home ownership for uh, communities of color uh, and so on. Uh, nevertheless, um, it has high levels of racial segregation and other forms of housing inequality.
0: All right. Thank you. So let's get to this first group of real estate professionals that you discuss, And these are the housing developers. Quite simply, these are the folks who build homes. They, they plan them, they construct them and so on, but they have to decide which neighborhood and which plot of land to build on. And these have important implications for racial segregation, as you discuss. Now, these folks, they often use economic justifications for the decisions they make, but you show the important role that racist rationales play in these decisions. So, how do we see these rubrics, the, the racist market and the people oriented ones, uh, used among housing developers, and what impacts do they have?
1: Sure. So the housing developers in my study, um, predominantly, uh, almost exclusively, actually, use the racist market rubric um, at kind of two different levels of decision making, the first one being the neighborhood level. So uh, when they're first deciding where to build in in urban areas, Houston developers um, look at Which neighborhoods do we want to build in? And overwhelmingly, the developers uh, in my study uh, chose to uh, build or develop uh, new homes in already existing white neighborhoods or uh, in neighborhoods they thought would be uh, attractive to white folks. Um, At times, these were Latinx areas uh, or uh, kind of areas that bordered uh, already white areas. And they made these justifications by basically assuming that white neighborhoods were the most desirable, uh, that white home buyers uh, would want to uh, purchase homes in white neighborhoods and that uh, white buyers were the kinds of clients that they wanted to kind of cater to. And then developers, uh, once they kind of decided, you know, here's, here's where I want to build. They also made a kind of individual kind of uh, plot level decisions. So plot of land level decisions and, Here, they often uh, targeted homeowners of color um, doing what I call and what others have called reverse blockbusting um, to really prey on uh, homeowners of color um, and immigrant homeowners, um, assuming that uh, these individuals would have less knowledge about the housing market, that they would be more gullible and so on, other racist ideas about them, uh, to really use a variety of strategies to try to purchase their homes or their land for below market price. So that they could then develop it and sell it for a much higher and inflated price to white families um, who would then move in.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. This is fascinating to read more about these folks who are often hidden. <laughs> so the second group you study, though, they're the people who most readers may think about when they think about brokerage and real estate. And they are the actual real estate brokers or the agents. So you start by talking about what appear to be very race neutral organizational routines that these real estate agents use. They they network, they have a percentage-based commission system, they market, they have different ways that they try to manage the various risks that come within the real estate industry. And these all sound like very practical ways that they would handle all the different market pressures that that they encounter. But in practice, you found that most agents Interpreted these pressures and accomplished their jobs through this racist market frame. Uh, and for this one, I found the differences between the white and non white agents to be quite striking when it came to how they interpret these routines, especially this practice of uh, pocket listings. So tell us how these brokers operate and how they uh, engage with these routines differently.
1: Sure. So uh, it- this is the the chapter. The when I talk about real estate agents and so on, this is the chapter I, I try to bring in some of the um, the new newer work on racialized organizations and talk about how real estate brokerages really pressure uh, real estate agents to build their businesses and uh, be profitable in, in specific ways that uh, become um, actually pretty overtly racialized. So um, real estate brokerages. Um, re- Routinely pressured real estate agents to build um, their sort of, sort of build their business through networking, and um, and at the same time they pressured agents uh, to conform to a standard uh, percentage based commission, as you mentioned. And when those two dynamics came together, sort of the the pressure of, of networking and the pressure of the percentage based commission, this is how um, those sort of um, pressures became racialized because. The percentage-based commission means that uh, real estate agents are paid more if the homes that they're selling or the homes that their they're, uh, buyers are buying are more expensive. Um, and, um, and at the same time, uh, in white agents' case, predominantly, they're already, their networks are, um, are white. Um, and so when you bring those two dynamics together, white real estate agents, they're already work. They're already networking with uh, other professionals and and consumers who are white. But then when you add the layer of and they're also looking to find uh, clients who are, quote unquote, higher value, um, those two things come together to ensure that white agents basically are pressured to. Uh, network with white people. Uh, and they do. And this is exactly how they acted. And uh, time after time, I observed a white real estate agents actively trying to network uh, with other white uh, people, specifically clients or, or customers, um, and avoid uh, customers or clients of color. Um, and 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 so this is related. Like the percentage-based commission is. I'm, I'm guessing we'll get to this a little bit later. But the percentage-based commission um, is one of the ways that I found that sort of the existing. Uh, sort of structure of neighborhood racial economic inequality gets reinscribed into contemporary housing market practices, right? So you have this long history of unequal home values um, across neighborhoods um, that have different racial compositions. So higher values in white neighborhoods and lower values in communities of color. Um, and so even if those values weren't continuing to be um, racialized or, or um, exacerbated, which we'll talk about later if that is happening. But even if it weren't, um, sort of the history of unequal home values would be getting sort of baked into um, the, the percentage-based commission in ways that incentivize uh, real estate agents to, to work with clients and people um, who are trying to buy homes or sell homes in white neighborhoods. Um, And so we so uh, in the book, I talk about, you know, how they do their networking in this racialized way and then how they maintain their networks and white agents uh, maintain their networks by maintaining trust uh, with their clients. And part of this maintaining trust means uh, sort of. Sort of sweeping the racism that they observed uh, from their clients or from others under the rug um, by uh, not actually uh, stopping to work with clients or people that were uh, actively racist uh, by just kind of going along with what uh, consumers wanted and by themselves actually introducing racism into the process if they thought that was going to make their clients happy. Um, And then by contrast, um, real estate agents of color, um, uh, several of them uh, actively tried to work against some of these dynamics by specifically networking with other individuals of color. Uh, Some of them also adopted alternative pay structures. So some of them uh, adopted like a flat fee um, instead of the percentage based commission um, and uh, really kind of tried to ensure that they weren't uh, unfairly um, kind of disadvantaging uh, home buyers or home sellers of color, uh, in part, because as I mentioned earlier, they themselves had often experienced uh, some of that um, discrimination and disadvantage in their own lives. And then, with respect to pocket listings, I I shift a little bit, and I talk less about organizational pressures, and I talk more about organizational silence. So, pocket listings um, are uh, what many in uh, the real estate brokerage industry call uh, home home sales or listings that are not placed publicly on the multiple listing service instead these are private listings that real estate agents and real estate brokers um, will advertise basically to their networks right and they'll they'll send them out on maybe like a social media or they'll send out an email and say hey you know I've got the exclusive on this house um, the the sellers you know don't want to put it up for sale on, publicly on the market, but I know about it. And so here you go, here's the insider information. And of course, for white agents who in my study found what it was almost exclusively white agents who used these pocket listings. That means, of course, given the dynamics of, of racialized networking and networks, of, as I call them, networks of value, um, they're sending these pocket listings Almost exclusively to potential white home buyers or, um, or other white people in their, in their networks, and disproportionately excluding uh, individuals of color and real estate professionals of color from even knowing that those listings exist. Um, and on this particular issue, um, the Houston Association of Realtors um, and other real estate uh, um, organizations were. Silent um, during uh, during the research. Um, recently, after um, after the you know sort of the study ended uh, a couple of years ago, the National Association of Realtors issued uh, a rule against uh, pocket listings. But as far as I can tell, and in conversations with others in the industry, that rule doesn't have any sort of meaningful consequences for folks who do engage them. So it's still it's still a, a common practice. And at the time of that I conducted the study, it was a practice that it was just allowed to happen and the organizations were pretty much silent on sort of the ramifications uh, of pocket listings for um, racial equity um, and fair housing concerns.
0: Yeah. And I, I thought the fact that while some of the, at least some of the uh, agents of color who you studied had never even heard of pocket listings before, uh, before you brought it up to them, which I, I thought uh, was very, very t- spoke volumes <laughs> when, when I read that. So the, the next two groups of real estate professionals they might not they also might not be who come to mind when readers think about real estate, but who nonetheless are playing very indelible roles in racial segregation. And these are the mortgage bankers and the appraisers. So the bankers are the money lenders, and these are the people who process loan applications for approval by a bank and bank's underwriters. And these folks work really closely, you show, with real estate agents who regularly recommend home buyers to them. But these relationships represent what you call segregated inter-industry networking or racially segregated professional and client networks that exclude racial minority agents and home buyers. And relatedly, they use what you call racialized discretion to decide whether and how to work with home buyers and to interpret loan applications. So it's this really fascinating look inside uh, a black box in the industry. So walk us through this. Process and the important roles networks and racialized discretion play in money lending for mortgages?
1: Sure. So I was very grateful to be able to draw on um, a couple of decades worth of research on mortgage loan inequality um, to help kind of interpret what I observed in my field work and in in the interviews uh, on mortgage bankers uh, and mortgage loan inequality. And uh, the, the sort of the consensus about mortgage loan inequality in the 21st century is that it's a, a big problem. It was a uh, a growing problem, and the in the lead up to um, the housing crash, uh, and it persists as a problem in uh, in the wake of the housing crash up until the present. And so, part of what I was trying to to understand was, you know, does how does that inequality emerge um, if we're, you know, because a mortgage loan application doesn't occur in a vacuum, right? It's not just someone wakes up one day and it's like, Oh, I'm going to go fill out a mortgage loan application. It's what is the process of, mortgage loan. And um, so that's kind of how I came to uh, this particular uh, set of findings. And um, what I found was, as you mentioned, uh, mortgage bankers uh, actively, particularly white mortgage bankers, actively tried to network with white real estate agents using the same logics. Again, this is a racist market rubric was throughout, um, all across present across all of the sort of industries and the professionals um, that, uh, that I studied. And they were actively Seeking to network with white real estate agents because they reasoned that you know white real estate agents would bring them to white home buyers, and they also thought that these buyers would be more likely to be profitable for them, would be lower risk, would be more likely to have a successful loan application, uh, would be more likely to ensure that that they got paid. Right, and so time after time, I observed uh, white uh, mortgage bankers. Networking with white real estate agents and white home buyers, uh, and vice versa, because white real estate agents also uh, thought that sort of recommending mortgage loan services to their clients was kind of a good service um, to um, ensure that they kind of make, stayed ahead of the competition. And so, really, I found that before uh, mortgage borrowers, before home buyers ever sit down to fill out an application, um, many times they are being channeled into these racially distinct uh, sort of uh, mortgage banker and client relationships precisely because of the behind the scenes inter-industry networking um, that most buyers and sellers aren't observing or privy to um, in, in, in their home buying or selling process. And then I also found that uh, mortgage bankers used uh, racialized discretion to interpret both uh, borrower risk. And that's something that's not surprising, given what we know about uh, mortgage loan inequality through the 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 many sort of quantitative studies that have looked at uh, those inequities over the last 20 years. Um, and I showed how that happens. Like, How do people interpret um mortgage borrowers and use different sort of signals and cues from the mortgage loan application to um, impose that sort of racialized discretion and determine uh, applicant risk. And I also show how mortgage bankers use racialized discretion to interpret property risk, right? So it's not just that they're looking at the applicant's risk. They're also looking at the property and where it's located, specifically its neighborhood. So I saw repeatedly that white mortgage bankers would uh, assume and give the benefit of the doubt to homes in white neighborhoods, assuming they would be low risk um, and uh, on the other side of that coin would routinely uh, be suspicious about or concerned about or would place a red flag uh, beside properties located in neighborhoods of color, um, assuming they were higher risk and uh, would be more likely to more carefully scrutinize uh, that particular um, application and transaction. So so in all of these ways, the mortgage bankers, uh, really, especially the white mortgage bankers, in fact, um were are facilitating um, this housing inequality behind the scenes in ways that uh, home buyers um, and sellers just were not able to observe, uh, were not privy to.
0: No, thank you for taking us inside that that process. So uh, finally, then we have the appraisers, and these are people who determine a home's value. And you say how they all pretty much use the the sales comparison approach or when they determine a home's value by comparing it to previously sold homes located in the same neighborhood or in the same area. Now, there's a pretty explicit racist history behind the appraiser industry, which would be great if you went into a little bit, but you also show how appraisers today, post-fair housing laws, still use a racist appraisal logic, as well as racist methods to determine home value, resulting in the highest valued homes being concentrated in white neighborhoods and the lowest valued home to be concentrated in non-white neighborhoods. So how do these professionals appraise the value of housing and what are the consequences of their appraisal?
1: Sure. So I'll start with some of the history, like you mentioned, Richard. Um, so part of the history of the appraisal industry is Uh, explicitly tied in to uh, the the sort of the formulation of um, the Federal Housing Administration um, and sort of the systematizing of uh, how do we assess risk and how do we assess value uh, for homes if we're going to be increasingly backing these sort of um, uh, mortgage loans um, to ensure that uh, greater numbers of of Americans, specifically white Americans, can access homeownership. And uh, Frederick Babcock, who is one of the sort of the architects of the modern appraisal industry, in very close sort of relationship with um, the federal government, uh, helped really create um, these explicitly racist appraisal logics and methods um, that are uh, still used today, just with this sort of explicit Reference to racial categories removed. So I'll walk you through um, some of the 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 common uh, or some of the the major. Uh, dynamics that I uh, saw in kind of the history of of the appraisal industry and then in the present um, and when I did ethnographic work and uh, interviews with appraisers. So the three things that I talk about are um, that are related from both the history and then the contemporary reality. um, The first one is that homogeneity or uniformity um, and especially um, uniform or homogenous neighborhoods um, that those neighborhoods are the most Desirable. That's sort of the first uh, sort of logical underpinning. The second one, and this was ex- explicitly stated in the historical uh, sort of handbooks and, and, and guidelines and, and training manuals and so on, was that white uh, or high income uh, neighborhoods uh, were considered um, homogenous and free from uh, adverse influences and were therefore the most desirable and the most valuable. Um, and then the third one um, is this notion that uh, that the race and class characteristics of the home buyer or seller um, should match the race or class race and class characteristics of the neighborhood. Um, and this is related to um, a, a phrase that I use in the book called the typical buyer um, um, approach. So those three things are still present in the appraisal industry today. They're just not ex- stated in explicitly racist terms. So still today in federal underwriting and appraisal training materials, neighborhood uniformity is considered a, um, a metric for determining neighborhood um, and home uh, value and desirability. Um, another one, which is related to uh, the sort of the idea of like white and high income neighborhoods being the most desirable homogenous neighborhoods, um, is still today, this idea that neighborhoods, um, uh, are, either free from or subject to adverse influences. And the list of adverse influences that um, the federal uh, underwriting guidelines and um, sort of appraisal training manuals and so on use are remarkably similar (laughs) to the ones that are used uh, that were used uh, back um, in the early and mid 20th century. Uh, In fact, some of them are exactly the same. um, And many of them uh, lend themselves not only to be uh, sort of indirectly uh, racialized through their reference to like systemic racial inequalities. So uh, like environmental hazards, for instance, which um, uh, of course, as we know, environmental hazards are not um, uh, evenly distributed across neighborhoods, right? That neighborhoods of color in particular have been harmed um, by environmental hazards and the intentional location of environmental hazards in uh, neighborhoods of color. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the second one. And then the third one that's still in play today um, is this notion of a typical buyer, where uh, which uh, encourages appraisers to imagine uh, who the home buyer would be for this home um, and and what sort of market that buyer represents. In doing so, for each of those three sort of logical underpinnings, the the appraisers in my study um, actively chose um, comps, um, which is sort of the method, and I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, But the method um, that they used uh, was sort of underpinned by these three uh, sort of uh, logical, I guess, legs. This is the legs that the, the methods stand on so the methods that appraisers use um there's really there's one predominant method that they use uh for residential appraising and it's been uh the same uh since uh the 1930s and that's the sales comparison approach and the sales comparison approach um, again this was part of the original sort of architecture um of uh of the appraisal industry uh was really explicitly intended to tie the individual home's value to its surrounding neighborhood. And that's why the logical underpinnings were became so important for, for Babcock and the federal government and why um, they were tied to these notions of neighborhood desirability and so on through this racialized lens. And so the sales comparison approach means you have an individual home, it's for sale, and the way that you that that appraisers try to assess the home's value is they look at other homes within that neighborhood, uh, that same neighborhood, and um, that have sold pretty recently, if possible. And they look at those sort of recent sales and they compare those recent sales to the home that's for sale that they're trying to evaluate. And they make a variety of adjustments for home size and quality and so on and so forth for um, um, uh, location and uh, other aspects uh, that they build into their reports. Um, But what I found was that appraisers actively interpreted each of their of these sort of logical underpinnings, the uniformity of the neighborhood, adverse influences and typical buyers through a racialized lens. They just didn't record um, racial categories or explicit racism on the forms that they had to submit. Right. So they actively uh, thought about white neighborhoods, uh, uniform white neighborhoods as the most desirable and racially heterogeneous or even architecturally heterogeneous neighborhoods as undesirable or less desirable They also assumed white neighborhoods to be free from adverse influences. Um, They assumed that neighborhoods of color would have lots of adverse influences. Um, And they also used the typical buyer logic um, in a racialized way. So they would assume... Uh, that white buyers would want to buy in white neighborhoods and that black buyers would want to buy in black neighborhoods, that Latinx buyers would want to buy in Latinx neighborhoods. And if those characteristics did not match, and we've seen a a lot of cases of this um, coming up in the news recently. So for instance, if there was a uh, black um, home buyer uh, coming in, this is one of the examples um, in the book, a black home buyer wanted to purchase a home and the white uh, real estate agent um, asked the uh, appraiser, Appraiser, um, to draw lower comps um, and uh, the appraiser, because precisely because they didn't want the black home buyer coming in um, to purchase the home, because again, that typical buyer logic. So, throughout all of this, the appraisal industry um, continues to be. Uh, explicitly racialized, just not officially racialized. Um, And so in some of the quantitative aspects of the chapter, I draw on some work I've done with um, Dr. Junia Howell, and we show how uh, these sort of racializing influences of appraisers and the appraisal industry and federal underwriting guidelines that encourage a sort of racialized lens actually matter. So it's not just the history of uh, appraisal inequality that matters. It's that The history um, carries forward into the present and in the present uh, appraisers in the appraisal industry continue to use home buyer race and neighborhood race, um, even home seller race as um, uh, part of their calculations uh, of home value, part of their understandings of uniformity or lack thereof, part of their understandings of adverse influences, and part of their understanding of who typical buyers are and who should be purchasing a home in a neighborhood, and should be, I'm doing air quotes, um, who they think should be uh, purchasing a home in a particular neighborhood.
0: Wow, thank you. This is such a, such a hidden part of the industry and of the process, but has such important consequences. Now, A book like this is perfect for policy recommendations, which you set up quite nicely by, uh, well, throughout the book, you set it up by presenting the perspectives and the practices of these race breakers, the folks within the industry who use this people-oriented market rubric. So what are you proposing can be done to address racism and thereby address systemic racial inequality in the housing industry among these professionals with the consequence of hopefully making housing fairer?
1: Yes. So I structured the policy chapter um, basically under sort of three major categories of policy recommendations. The first major category is monitoring, uh, monitoring housing market professionals. So for instance, um, housing developers, particularly for profit housing developers are Virtually unmonitored and unregulated, um, they don't have to have any professional licensure. Uh, they do have to, you know, file things at this like city planning and um, and permitting and so on um, for you know environmental reasons and and infra- like infrastructural reasons. Uh, but they don't have to take any fair housing training. They don't have any sort of um, uh, particular consequences or threat of consequences uh, for the kinds of racist behaviors that they engage in. Uh, So so even though I saw a lot of uh, sort of racism amongst the real estate agents in my study, at least some of them were aware of the potential consequences of some of their actions. Housing developers, on the other hand, had no such awareness because they didn't need to. They were Basically unmonitored uh, when it came to the kinds of uh, practices, um, social and particularly racial and economic practices they were engaging in. So I encourage, uh, for instance, more and better monitoring um, of housing market professionals. I also, uh, the second major category of uh, policy recommendations that I discuss um, were basically legal approaches. And uh, what I really tried to do in that section of the policy chapter was draw attention to the ways that perhaps uh, fair housing lawyers or other housing advocates could begin to think about creatively um, sort of discovering or um, uh, finding evidence of discrimination in the housing market for um, hopefully uh, finding new ways to think about disparate impact um, discrimination and the kinds of claims um, that could be made um, and really to hopefully sort of broaden the uh, sort of the, the the range of uh, folks that they're sort of investigating, right? So um, in, recently um, I've had the opportunity to speak to several uh, lawyers who are working on uh, fair housing cases related to appraisers. Uh, and I'm really thrilled about that. <laughs> um, I was hoping that would be one of the sort of the outcomes of of the book, right? That there would be uh, more attention to a, sort of a wider cast of, uh, of housing market professionals, uh, because as you noted, um, And for many years, uh, many of these uh, actors have been um, largely hidden uh, or at least uninvestigated. And then the third major category of uh, policy recommendations uh, falls under what I call direct intervention, right? So directly intervening in housing market practices uh, that um, help produce and uh, reproduce uh, racial inequality in housing and racial segregation. So um, some of these recommendations are would be will be pretty easy to implement. For instance, uh, one of the recommendations is to um, actually stop um, uh, using market area maps. And I didn't talk about this earlier when I was talking about real estate agents, but one of the uh, sort of organizational level dynamics that happens today is that real estate brokerages and real estate boards rely on market area maps uh, that they... Construct and um, in Houston, I found that the construction of these market area map um, was uh, racially and spatially unequal. Right, so white neighborhoods um, were sort of specialized, unique, um, and much smaller areas, whereas neighborhoods of color, specifically Black and Latinx neighborhoods, um, were. Uh, just their, their heterogeneity was just flattened, right? And um, the, the number of people that lived in black and Latinx market areas was much, much higher. We're talking like tens of thousands of people more living in uh, black and Latinx uh, market areas than in uh, white market areas. And again, that's a a real estate board uh, organizational practice that's common across the United States. They could be done away with, like, what's the purpose of a market area map, right? It's, it's, one could argue that it's specifically to delineate um, the delineate urban space by race. Um, and I don't think that that would actually um, be a, a good aim for any sort of organization interested in maintaining its veneer of of fair housing and equal housing opportunity um, to continue to do. Some of the some of the suggestions I make in the policy recommendation, the last policy recommendation section, would be um, very difficult to do. And uh, by difficult, I mean, there may or may not be the political will to do them. So for instance, I uh, actually recommend just abolishing the sales comparison approach, right? Like, this approach was explicitly intended to ensure that homes in white neighborhoods continue to um, accrue value and appreciate and appreciate and value um, over time was specifically created to ensure that homes of white in, in neighborhoods of color did not. Um, and and that's precisely what has functioned to do and what it continues to do today. Even if there were not the sort of ongoing sort of racialized lens um, and the racialized logics of, of contemporary appraisers, which there is, and I document that extensively, um, the, histo- the historic influence of the sales comparison approach um, into today's housing market um, should be enough, in my opinion, to um, abolish its use. Um, So, um, and I also advocate for um, uh, really trying to do some of this, um, particularly the valuation, what does valuation mean when most of that land is stolen anyways? Um, And how do we bring um, uh, tribes and um, tribal sovereignty into this conversation of of land and valuation processes? So yeah, they range uh, the gamut there um, from, more doable and probably wouldn't make much difference to um, more of a sort of an abolitionist approach. But I'm hoping that at least some of them will um, sort of gain traction.
0: Well, thank you for these very well thought out, well-informed recommendations. Uh, as you show, this, this system was truly designed to work in a very particular way. So hopefully people in positions to make certain changes to it hear about these recommendations and follow them. So, um, so Elizabeth, you've been very generous with your time today, but before we finish, uh, please tell us what you're working on now. And I recognize that this is a bit of a mean question because you just finished the whole book and I'm asking you what's next. So what do you got?
1: Sure. So, uh, I'll tell you about a couple of things I'm working on. I'm actually working on another book with uh, Dr. Sarah Mayorga, um, really excited about this particular project. We are looking at uh, neighborhood reputation and the social construction of neighborhood reputation, specifically as a mechanism of racial capitalism and the production of neighborhood inequality. Uh, And we're using, which true to my genre, I guess, uh, we're using in-depth interviews and ethnographic fieldwork um, as sort of the the empirical backbone um, of of that project, which is uh, under advanced contract with the University of Chicago Press. And then I'm also working on a separate project that centers rental property management and focuses on um, rental uh, markets and rental inequalities. Um, that is a mixed methods project. I'm using um, a variety of data sets that are already existing, including the American Housing Survey um, and the rental housing finance survey, restricted data, um, as well as qualitative data collected in two different research sites. And really what we're hoping to do um, with that project is sort of broaden understanding of renters' experiences uh, of the rental process to include um, Asian, um, American Indian, uh, Latinx, black and white renters um, in understudied places, um, as well as, uh, as I, the title might suggest, property managers, um, who I think are an understudied intermediary that matter a great deal uh, in terms of how rental markets and rental inequality um, are experienced.
0: Awesome. Well, this you got a wonderful book. These are two really great sounding projects. Best of luck to them. And hopefully you'll come back and be able to discuss one of those or both of those new books when they come out. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. All right. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me.